Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This week, we are turning our eyes to Iran and its changing role in the Middle East. Next week marks the one-year anniversary of the death of Masa Amini, the 22-year-old woman killed in police custody. Since her death, Iran has been rocked by protests. We'll look at how the country has changed, where the protest movement is now, and we'll look more broadly as well at Iran's role in the Middle East and the relations with Saudi Arabia, as well as growing ties with China. Well, I've got a great group of people here and that we're all in the studio this week, which is terrific. Um, We've got former BBC journalist for 15 years, Rana Rahimpour, who is now uh, writing and uh, talking and broadcasting independently. Much of that on Iran. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. Returning to the podcast, we've got Dr. Sanim Vakil, who's the director of our Middle East and North Africa program. Welcome back to the show, Sanim. I think you've rushed to us from another podcast. Thank you, Bronwyn, yes. <laughs> Thanks for being here. And we have Michael Goldfarb, who's an author and longtime journalist specializing in the Middle East, America, all kinds of things, and is the host of the first Rough Draft of History podcast. Michael, great to have you. Glad to be here, Bronwyn. Thank you for coming. Well, let's start. I don't do many anniversaries in general at Chatham House. Um, I don't encourage them because what does a year mean? But let's let's start with this one. Where are we one year after the death of Masa Amini? Because this one has really struck a lot of chords with a lot of people. It has. And unlike us, the Islamic Republic is quite worried about it. Uh, we have seen uh, waves of arrests of relatives of those who have died in the protests last year. Just recently. Just recently, um, in the last couple of weeks, um, including uh, Masa Amini's uncle and the family are planning to hold um, anniversary uh, for Masa Amini and uh, clearly the uh, government is quite worried about it. So looking back at what happened over the last year, um, what we feel is that uh, there is definitely anger over the, the brutal crackdown of the protests and resistance in day-to-day life, usually uh, by women. We don't see as many protests as we did in last uh, September, October, but uh, we can see on day-to-day uh, many women are simply refusing to wear the headscarf and they are paying very high consequences. And is that right across the country or is it just in particular areas of people it testing is, how far they can get away with it? It's very difficult to know because we don't have any independent journalists inside the country, but it's definitely more widespread than it used to be before the uh, death of Masa Amini. Um, but it comes at a very high price and the regime has become more emboldened in, in the crackdown of the protests. They are sentencing women to uh, to uh, uh, sometimes washing dead body in morgues as a result of removing their headscarf or they're sentenced to having psychotherapy sessions because they are breaking the law. Um, so it means it seems that the regime is definitely more violent and more ready to crack down in case there is another uprising uh, for the anniversary. But the resistance is still there. And Sanam, you've been absolutely consistent on this podcast from the beginning when uh, the protests and the emotions around them were perhaps at a height of saying the odds were against this really working, really taking off. There weren't leaders. The regime was still immensely strong. How do you look back on this year and, and that kind of judgment? Was there ever a chance and is there now for this to have make a real change? 
Certainly, with each round of protests that we've seen in Iran, and protests since last year have been destabilizing, as Rana described, there something breaks inside Iran. And we've seen protests since 1999. Um, with each wave, they've been very powerful, and the system has lost legitimacy. But the system has also struck back with every protest in a different way, using different tactics, building on its repressive capacity. And the leadership and the elite in Iran today are a narrow group and imposing their control quite violently and willing to do really anything to stay in power. This is an authoritarian state and the vested interests of the political establishment are to be in power. And so they co-opt, they repress, and, and they try to incentivize their citizens to to stay on board. They are losing legitimacy, but that doesn't mean that 85 million people in Iran um, have swung against the system. And it doesn't mean at the same time that they don't have some degree of support. So it is opaque, but deeply repressive. And I consistently do think that this is a system that will do anything uh, to stay in power and survive, including transform. And I think what we are witnessing is a gradual transformation of the Islamic Republic, but we just don't know what it's going to morph into. Just just a, a fragment more on that, a transformation We're witnessing what kind of transformation? Um, I think we're witnessing some political transition. Of course, it's going to be connected to the death of the supreme leader who has ruled Iran since 1989. Um, He is aging. Um, He is reportedly ill. But of course, we don't know when that time is going to come. Do you mean it transitioned to something even more authoritarian? It could be. It could be that um, we have constitutional reform in Iran, similar to what took place when the last supreme leader, Khomeini, died. Um, You can see that the system is stagnating, um, that there is no real leadership. Uh, The president isn't leading. Um, The head of parliament isn't leading. There are fiefdoms and and sort of clannish type factional politics where people are vying for power and staying power because they know uh, something is coming, but no one, again, is willing to um, vest their interest in what, what comes next. Michael, these protests attracted a lot of attention around the world, particularly in what some we might still call the West. Obviously, cheering on these these women in incredible bravery. Do you think it's had any impact at all? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think so. Um, you know, in the spring, we're recording this now at the beginning of the autumn. We we went to a an event hosted by Kehan, which is an Iranian publication out of London. Woman, life, freedom was still on everybody's lips, and people were very, very optimistic that, you know, it had been going on for six months, and it would continue, and it would continue. And I was skeptical, but it was not the kind of evening to express one's skepticism. I think that this is much closer to what we've seen since 1999. My first trip was in 2001. And the remnants of that and and the little bit of opening up that happened after that seemed to be enough. I think that um, the idea of stasis in a regime that's rotten is an important one because at moments like that, we see it in Iraq and we see it in, in even more, uh, we see it in the first world sometimes when you, you get regime, like in Britain occasionally, like right now, when you know that the regime is, has run out of ideas, run out of real power, then people look to their friends and their family to protect them 
for when the fall comes. And I think that that seems to be what's happening in Iran. And in the it's broader pr- question... slightly I, dramatic it is what, well. it, what is happening in Britain at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I, right, I, I could offer you a counter-argument that the problems are more economic okay, than political. But, uh, we, we, exactly. But I mean, to, to come a little bit closer to the region, I put these protests next to what's happening in Afghanistan, where, again, after the dramatic withdrawal of the United States and Britain and the entire Western apparatus of NGOs, um, inevitably, all the gains that women had made, the one bright spot in the 20-year occupation of that country by the United States, um, or it wasn't an occupation. You know, I just think that it is not, it, it speaks to how difficult it is to build a movement on the back of women's rights as a universal right that is something that goes from, that, that transcends borders and that real political change has to come from, I think, more traditional political activities. And on top of that, it lacked leadership. So the, the, those protests were very emotional and a lot of people got involved, but um, it because couldn't the fig- be sustained. Because the figurehead was uh, sadly the person who had yes, died. Yes, uh, or somebody to organize it. Mm. So it was all like flash mob protests and then it continued. And after a while, people get tired and it's, it's unsustainable unless you have a plan to go forward. And that's the problem with the opposition. So at the moment, there isn't a clear opposition who can organize those who are against the regime so they can continue their protests. I would add that, of course, this is this authoritarian states in general are very good at being repressive. And the Islamic Republic, <clears throat> excuse me, has shut down its civil society, arrested its activists, um, and it knows how to watch and control dissent. So it's very hard for organic leadership to develop inside Iran. But I think as a second point, um, I wouldn't categorize these protests as solely women protests. And that's what really happened um, in the narrative around the protests, the, the hijab and the veil was very much a symbol of dignity and and repression inside Iran. But to to limit them as women um, protests, I think, limits um, the uh, dynamism of the protest movement that brought out ethnic groups, also Sunni ethnic groups that brought out um, economic protesters. And I think the protests were about dignity. And that is what I think most Iranians come together on. And was there a generational element? Yes, young, young, young yeah. Iranians. Young Iranians can see. It's a very connected society. They can see. They can talk to many, many Iranians in Los Angeles and right around the world. Do you think that that is rising up as a sense of young people's frustration in Iran in in any kind of coherent way? No. I can't see that at the moment. There is a very large divide between large parts of the Iranian society and the establishment, but I and and there is demand for change, but I can't see any concrete action that will translate into into protests or or, or rising up. And what effect has the um, Ukraine crisis in our peripheral vision of this podcast? What effect has that had? I mean, for a start, it pushed up the oil price, and it very dramatically began to cluster the world into different uh, groups of countries. Has that been a, a help to Iran in any way? As I'm seeing nodding around, mm-hmm. Michael. I'm, I'm clustering into groups of countries. I'm not quite following that. Iran, Iran uh, Russia, China. Yeah. Agreeing, uh, well, more, I think that this, this, is, this has been one of, the, oil. It's yep. one of the most interesting aspects of this last year because running in tandem with these protests has been the new alliances 
that have been made available to Iran um, by necessity from Russia because Iran produces military hardware for Russia, which you know they need. Um, I think that we have, have too often forgotten that they share this enormous inland sea, you know, the Caspian, which is is the northern shore of Iran and the southern the southern shore of of Russia, the southern western shores of of Russia, and so there are relations that go back in into the mists of time, but there's also this remarkable opening up from Saudi Arabia towards Iran, all of which I think has the tendency to damp down expectations of change because it, it does, to a degree, reinforce the regime. Who are you dealing with? Who is America dealing with through whatever interlocutors it's using in the Arabian Peninsula? And so it, it complicates things enormously, I think, within Iran. Let's use that as the point to go on and talk about Iran in the region. As you said, these new alliances um, that are emerging, some of them very surprising. I'm going to come back right at the end to talk about the point that uh, uh, Sanam was, was raising about the succession of uh, to Ayatollah Khamenei and, and what, what, what all this does to it. But let's, let's go on to Iran in the region and indeed the Saudi, uh, astonishing Saudi deal. Rana, what did you make of the reasons for that when, well, when, when that happened? Astonishing is a very good way of uh, describing it. None of us were expecting that on uh, March 10th when there was a surprise announcement that um, Iran and Saudis uh, have uh, reached an agreement to normalize relations. And in fact, this week they exchanged ambassadors. Uh, but the, the, uh, the more brokered important... Brokered by, by China. Brokered by China. And that was extremely important. Not that China uh, specifically cares about um, Iran in that sense, but it cares about stability and oil. And because it has invested so much in, in Saudi Arabia, it cannot allow Iran to destabilize oil prices in the region. And Iran and uh, China... So this signed, was a Chinese motive? This, this definitely was a Chinese motive, more, more so than the Iranians, because the, Iran, uh, the, the Iranian establishment, specifically Ayatollah Khamenei, for many years uh, said, uh, ha, has been uh, very critical of um, House al-Saud. They have the, the, the relations were, were um, uh, severed for seven years before this. And there was a, the historic Shia-Sunni uh, rivalry between the two and countries. Two great powers in the, in, in, in the region. We have, we've been, spent years discussing how they were squaring up to each other. Exactly. So I think at that moment, soon after the, or during the protest, Iran felt more weakened than before. And then China offered, because other countries had tried to mediate between the Iran and Saudis and they had uh, failed. And then China got involved. And Iran realized that it can't have the entire world against it and decided to um, make peace with Saudi Arabia. Um, and China has been also very helpful in, in countering U.S. sanctions. Uh, Reuters reported last week that Iran is now producing over three million uh, barrels of oil every day and exporting about two million a day, which is almost as, as, as much as it was exporting before the United States left the nuclear deal in 2018. So, And that's because of China. So China has been keeping Iran afloat with the help of Russia. And it seems that there is this alliance that will help the uh, regime in Iran. Sanam, do you, do you accept that picture that Iran did this deal with its crucial role by China, but at a point of weakness for Iran, the leadership feeling very defensive and did this, this as, as we are agreeing, un, as the world agreed, unlikely deal? And do you think uh, the deal will, will hold, will actually mean anything? 
I think that the deal was underway before March 10th. Um, I think that Iran activated the deal uh, because of domestic weakness. And there were um, concerns about uh, Saudi Arabia and regional infiltration inside Iran that through the deal, Iran was be- was able to contain. Um, Saudi Arabia has been reportedly behind Iran International, which played a very active um, activist media role through the protests. And that was very alarming for Iran. There are certain moves that um, the Iranians wanted to um, to cease uh, inside the country. I think that um, the move is also coming on um, after about five years of the Iranians trying to improve relations with the Gulf. And Saudi Arabia was the outlier behind, behind Bahrain, of course. But um, the Emiratis had already restored ties in 2019 after Iran um, became very aggressive in the Persian Gulf, attacking tankers and ships and destabilizing oil and, and shipping. Um, the Saudis took a bit longer. Obviously, it's a heavyweight and, and their optics there. And consensus needed to be built inside the kingdom. But I, I think for Iran, it was a big win. It was defensive, of course, but um, it put Iran back on the offensive. And it showed that um, Iran could be nimble. Um, Iran could be flexible. And this is tied to Iran's um, position in the region, the impact of sanctions that have, of course, been very alarming for the elite and tied to the protests. And the Saudi motive in this? I, I can take yeah, the Saudi motive. I mean, Mohammed bin Salman, who's been in power since 2016 um, and began his leadership, also very activist. I mean, there was the war in Yemen. There was the blockade of Qatar. There was the hijacking of uh, the Lebanese prime minister, realized that uh, for the delivery of Vision 2030, the economic and political trans- I mean, economic and uh, sort of decarbonization of the Saudi economy, um, it would only succeed with regional security. And it required dealing with uh, Iran's provocative activities on its borders and, and the like. I, I do wonder, and actually, since I'm s- seated with experts, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm just a journalist, I flit from story to story, the, the role that China plays also in Saudi Arabia, because for a long time, China and Iran have had important relations because China sucks up car- carbon-based energy. It just needs it to sustain its phenomenal economic growth, which is slowing down, but is still phenomenal. And you know, the pipelines being built along the Persian Gulf to Gwadar in, in southern Pakistan and across Iran and up into Central Asia, going across next to Russia. But it also needs energy from Saudi Arabia. And, I, I, and its needs from that region, from that country in particular, are entirely different than Western needs now. I mean, the United States doesn't need oil from Saudi Arabia. I don't even, I'm not sure of Europe's needs of Saudi oil, but in, in any case, it's like two separate conversations. What the West needs is security for Israel and some kind of containment of Iran. And what China needs is oil. It doesn't matter to them if it comes from Iran or from Saudi Arabia. And I do wonder if they brought some heads together to get to some kind of diplomatic rapprochement just to make it easier to have their source of supply get to them. I'll come on to Israel in a second. But, uh, Michael, you spent a lot of time in the region, particularly in Iraq. Um, What does it do to calculations of other countries suddenly to have Iran and Saudi Arabia on civil terms, if you like? Do you know, Iraq, I, 
I hate to say it at this point, is, is still in, in its crisis. And it, it has been, part of the country has essentially been a client state of Iran basically since the overthrow of Saddam. The U.S. didn't even realize it till it was too late and there was this massive civil war going on. Um, in the north, the Kurds are periodically trying to get oil through the pipeline to Turkey, and it gets shut down because of a variety of activities related to the PKK and, and what's happening in this Kurdish Syria. I don't think they play. I don't think they're in a position to have much influence in these discussions. Um, they don't have influence, but the former Prime Minister Khadami was very important in um, uh, playing the sort of broker role, uh, bringing together both countries for six rounds of talks. Um, and uh, Iraq, um, I think, sees itself caught between two regional heavyweights in power and, and thought balance in the region uh, would be um, an opportunity for Iraq to build stronger bridges with the Gulf, benefit from Gulf investment, um, and, and that in itself could, over time, roll back uh, Iran's uh, sort of predatory role in, in Iraq as well. And it's not just Iraq. There are so many countries in the region. I think there is a sigh of relief if the two countries, if, which I still think is a big if, uh, if there is peace uh, between Iran and the Saudis, many countries in the region will benefit from it. And I think we do have to capture that if and remember it because this is a deal done very, very suddenly between two countries that have been deeply antagonistic um, for a long time, um, but uh, absolutely, possibly a, a sigh of relief. Let's just come on to the um, talks then, um, exploratory talks uh, that the US now is is brokering between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And Sanam, what do you make of these? We have a bit, it was big in the papers and, and deliberately, I think uh, some months ago, we've had a bit more this week, the Palestinians, uh, some officials in Riyadh talking about what they would want. Uh, as part of a deal, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor of the U.S., saying uh, on Tuesday this week, uh, it's not, imi not imminent, which I think we could um, assume. What do you make of why this has come up now? There are so many reasons why this is opportunistic right now. The Biden administration is looking opportunistic for a Opportunistic by the U.S.? Uh, for everyone. For everyone. Right. Everyone okay. has something to gain except for the perhaps the Palestinians, but even um, they are players in this. Um, I think the U.S. is looking for a win, although uh, this is not going to be a big or a quick win, and hence uh, Sullivan's sort of caution. And a, a win partly because of China, what China has demonstrated with this, uh, it, its own ability to... To a degree, deals. but also because there um, is a sense that Israeli integration into uh, the Middle East uh, uh, would be a game changer for regional security and would protect U.S. interests, allowing American partners in the Gulf and Israel to collaborate more, not just in the economic area, but also in security and intelligence. So that would be an opportunity. And so effectively, we have two strands of integration taking place, one of with Iran and one of Israel. Um, and so I think that they're looking for a balance. But the ask on the table from Saudi Arabia is so outrageous that it's very hard for the U.S. to deliver a civilian nuclear program to the kingdom and of Saudi Arabia. in your view, Arabia. that is the most sensitive bit. Well, that's one, but there's a second really hard one, and that's a bilateral defense treaty with the United States that hasn't even got a bilateral defense treaty with Taiwan. So... 
I don't see those as、um, attainable. Perhaps they're negotiations. And then the third challenge, of course, is everything taking place in Israel.、Um, and there's thinking, perhaps, in the Biden administration that this could、um, marginalize some of the radical voices in, in Netanyahu's cabinet, like Smotrich and Ben Gavir. Because the Palestinians、uh, have been、uh, saying, "Okay, we want hundreds of millions of dollars of, of aid right away, and we want more control over the、uh, occupied、uh, territories." But、uh, Yeah. In in the West Bank, do you take all this seriously, Michael? No, I don't. I mean, I, I this is this is diplomatic maneuvering, but mostly it's domestic political maneuvering. I, I agree with you that it's entirely about coming into an election cycle and wanting to have a big win. And you know, Joe Biden is you know is old and he's an old fashioned Democrat. He he still th- my guess is he still thinks there's an Israel. That's kind of like Israel in 1974, when the Labour Party, which barely exists now, was who the, you talked, who you spoke to. The Israeli Labour Party. Yeah, the Israeli yeah. Labour Party,、um, and that's not on. It's interesting to, to hear this. We're in a conversation where Israel and Iran are seen as the the outsiders that we're trying to bring into the big tent, as if there's an equality and in a. I don't know that there is. I don't think it's it's a starter for two reasons. One is the Israeli government is there on sufferance. I mean, we we were you know when you talk about protests in Iran, I was in Israel two months ago, and I went out on one of these protests. They've been going on every Saturday night since the start of the year, and they still turn out 150,000 people. This is what happens in a, in a non-authoritarian state. You can get to 150,000 people. I've talked to many people flying in for the for the protests, and, indeed, and from the people, from the U.S.、Yes. Yeah, because it's about an idea of Israel that I think a lot of Jews around the world still have, but you know there are other things to get on with in life rather than you know the founding ideals of The Jewish state, and I don't know that this government can sustain itself short of you know author- authoritarian maneuvers in in the Knesset. But you have you have those challenges, and you, then there's the other one, which is the Palestinian. Exactly, and you know I I this is the fiftieth anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, the October sixth War, and one of the things that happened after that war, I mean, Anwar Sadat. Initiated that war because he wanted to be able to negotiate the return of Sinai, and he succeeded. But even his own cabinet, some of, quite a few people resigned because, in making his deal with Menachem Begin, he left the Palestinians to one side. And when he was assassinated, that was certainly one of the reasons the assassins took his life. I mean, there were other reasons, but that was one of them. And I think that. Um, I, I cannot see Mohammed bin Salman, who will someday be the king of Saudi Arabia, keeper of the two holy sites, abandoning the Palestinians, and because the nature of this cabinet that Netanyahu has put together to keep himself in power is nakedly ethno-sectarian and frankly racist, and won't back down. So、the this, government has this, to fall before like, this can this even be、Israeli、real. This Israeli cabinet could not make the, this cabinet simply、like、could not the kind of uh, uh, no. concessions no, requests. Uh, not at demo- all. The, not at all. I mean, and I don't、asking. even.、Uh, and、yeah. I'd be surprised if you know. I can't even.、Uh, no amount of money can bribe the Palestinian Authority to surrender to this particular group. You know. 
That is a really important point. We're drawing to the end. Let me just ask two um, short and specific questions. Where does all this leave the Iran nuclear deal talks? So there are signs that Iran has slowed down its enrichment of uh, the uh, its its nuclear uh, its uranium um, slowed down, but it hasn't stopped. But it has already enriched enough. Uh, uranium up to 60% to to produce several bombs, according to IAEA, uh, United Nations Nuclear Watchdog. Uh, But some believe that the fact that Iran has slowed it down is a signal to the United States that is interested in uh, some form of uh, de-escalation of the tension and is hoping to help Biden uh, and possibly his re-election. But it doesn't mean that Iran is changing tact. Iran is still enriching uranium and Iran is still not cooperating fully with the IAEA. And that is a cause for a lot of concern, both in the region and internationally. And Sanam, your point about the succession in Iran, I just wanted to pick that up. Sure. I think it it connects back to Russia and and the war in Ukraine. And I think this is a supreme leader that's thinking about his legacy. Um, And he has been the backbone of the Islamic Republic, uh, the longest standing leader in the Middle East today. Um, He is looking uh, to preserve uh, the values and ideology of the Islamic Republic at all costs. And through the war in Ukraine, I think one of the takeaways for hardliners in Iran is that a nuclear program, um, uh, whether it's open and declared or ambiguous is very important to protecting the security and stability of the Islamic Republic. And so that's why um, there maybe there are signals um, and, and back channel talks taking place with the United States. And there is a reported um, unofficial agreement that isn't going to be in writing um, that would uh, help Iran in the short run. But in the long run, containing the acceleration of Iran's nuclear program in the context of U.S. elections, uh, Israeli politics, um, and a lot of domestic uncertainty, I think it will be hard to see. On that note, we are going to have to draw to a close. We could clearly could talk an awful lot more, and Chatham House is doing a lot on China in the Middle East and the changing politics of the region in general. And many thanks to Sanam and her team on that. But a big thank you right now to my guests, Michael Gofab, Rana Rahimpur, and Sanam. Do follow them all on Twitter. The links are going to be in the show notes. Do follow Michael's podcast. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and all major platforms, as well as through our social media. Do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. I always ask, and we do read them. To read more from our experts and to find out about our events, and we're really coming into the high season here at Chatham House, so do have a look. Or to become a member, and we would love to have you. Don't forget to visit chathamhouse.org. And you can find all our programs, all our work there, including, of course, the Middle East and North Africa program. Goodbye from me. Thank you for listening. See you next week.